Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you enjoyed last week's experimental episodes. Please feel free to send me any feedback on any of my social media accounts. Judging by how well the kids episode did, I will definitely be doing another one of those in the future. Next week, we will return to our normal show, so remember to send in your stories. I take both fiction and nonfiction, but please let me know which is which. You can send them to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Now, this week, I am so excited, you guys. The Smile is one of my most popular episodes. If you haven't listened yet, please do. And it was a marriage of author Nina G. Jones's beautiful words and my disgusting tooth-pulling sounds. Nina is an incredible erotica author, so please remember to look up her books on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. Nina has graciously sent in another story, our longest yet, and we have both been stoked about this episode for a month now. This story will hit close to home for some of my listeners. And for others, I hope you learned some lessons from this nightmarish parable. I present to you, Good Hair. The antique warehouse was an endless, dusty maze. That was perfect for someone who just wanted to get lost. It was my first day off in weeks from working the front desk at one of those 24-hour gym chains. It paid like shit, but I had to take it, despite being embarrassingly overqualified. On top of that, I had to deal with my quick-to-anger boss, who we all knew was taking steroids, yet somehow didn't have much to show for it. I had a well-paying job last year, but the market crashed and the company went down and no one was hiring in the mortgage sector. I didn't have anyone to fall back on, being the only child with two deceased parents. The bills were piling up and I could no longer hold out waiting for something I felt I deserved. So... I tidied up bathrooms on the hour and made sure people swiped their membership cards and stared at the clock. Then I went home and tossed in bed over which bill couldn't wait any longer to be paid. I was living on 20% of my previous income and I had lost on a property I had to offload when I saw things starting to tank. I still had my condo mortgage and losing it was one indignity I just refused to suffer. So I somehow performed a miracle of math and made the payments each month, though I didn't know how much longer I could continue turning water into wine. I couldn't afford anything at the antiques warehouse, but at least browsing was free and therapeutic in some ways. The rhythmic walking up and down the long aisles, 
the brownness of it all. Old dolls, leather goods, wooden chairs and chests, the dim lighting. The stale smell gave me a sense of perspective. That there was a time before things got this hard and hopefully there would be a time after. It was a gray Tuesday late morning with a kind of bleak sky that kept people indoors and I could walk for minutes past the individual number booths before even seeing another shopper. I came upon a wood carving of a dog and I smiled wistfully. It reminded me of Blanche, my little girl who had died the month before. I couldn't afford treatments for her, not that they would have afforded her much more time, and I had to put her down. Like I told you, it had been a really bad year. The carving wasn't an antique, while the wood was old reclaimed from abandoned steel mills. Inmates from a prison in the state hand-carved these, set a little piece of paper affixed to it with twine. The proceeds went to a charity. It was only $15, but every dollar I earned was accounted for. There was a time I would have purchased it without a thought. I would have taken it home and crouched down to Blanche as she greeted me upon my arrival. Look, girl, it's you, I would have said. But Blanche was dead, and I was broke. And I wasn't that person who could afford these small pleasures, even as a memorial. You like dogs? A wobbly voice asked from behind. I could tell the shaky tone was from aged vocal cords and not indecision. I startled a bit and was embarrassed for it. I turned around to find an elderly woman behind me. Despite her age, I could still see the beauty from her younger years, fighting to remain seen past the thin skin. Oh, yeah, I do. But it's just that this one in particular reminds me of my dog. Isn't that precious? How long have you had her? Since she was a puppy, her litter was abandoned on the street and I saved her and the others went to a rescue. But she's gone now. She passed away last month. She placed her hand against my chest. Oh, my dear, I am so sorry. It's okay, I nodded as I placed the dog carving back on the shelf. Aren't you going to buy it? she asked. I waved my hand dismissively at the carving. Oh no, I have far too many knickknacks cluttering my shelves. I had gotten used to lying about my newfound poverty. It's funny, I noticed you from all the way over there. She pointed her shaky, veiny finger to the first booth in the aisle. A semi-transparent fringed kimono sleeve draped from her arm. You have beautiful hair. Just stunning. 
Thank you, I smiled bashfully. Though the response was wrote at this point, I don't mean to gloat in any way, I promise, but I was used to the compliment. I have a head teeming with long, voluminous, tight spirals that run down my back and up towards the heavens. The compliments are probably more a reflection of the rarity of its texture than anything. It makes me a human peacock. It gets attention, even when I want to fade into the browns and grays of a day like this. So, instead of self-deprecation, which is often the reaction women fall back on when given a compliment, I find a simple thank you moves things along much faster. Is it real? She asked. "Mm Mm-hmm, I nodded. All mine. I was only mildly annoyed. It was another question I had to field regularly. In my mind, I would ask back, are your teeth, tits, or nails real? But I never did actually utter the words. What are you? She asked, reaching to touch my hair. What am I? I repeated as I stepped back subtly. She didn't take the hint and ran her bejeweled hands over my hair, which caught every little fly away. Without looking, I knew she was creating an instant trail of frizz on an already damp day. Like a pregnant woman's belly, people felt it was perfectly okay to reach out and touch this part of my body without asking. I didn't have the social energy to take a stand about it every time, especially to an old lady whose notions about personal space were likely outdated and who had no genuinely ill intentions. Where's your family from? Oh, a bunch of places, I responded, shoving my hands in my pockets. It was then I noticed her hair, despite being pinned up, was exceptionally glossy and lush for that of someone her age, when hair had often deteriorated to a straw-like texture. Perhaps it was a wig. That wasn't uncommon for older ladies. From her floral silk top to her fresh manicure and round red lacquer lips, she was youthful in parts, despite clearly being elderly. In fact, I didn't know why I was so sure of her age considering how many of her features belied it. It could be in her hands, which were sinewy and thin-skinned or her voice, which vibrated with the loss of a robust and supple pair of vocal cords. Maybe it was the smell of her? A sharp, harsh, floral bouquet and amber mixed with the smell of talcum powder, and underneath it all, a faint layer of staleness? (laughs) You are a lovely girl. Exotic features and so sweet to patiently speak with an old lady like me. No, I chuckled shyly. It's my pleasure. After a pause, she sighed. I'll let you be on your way then. It was a pleasure meeting you. She extended the last word into a question mark. Sarai, I answered. Judith, she replied. I left the booth, 
though I hadn't finished searching it. My social anxiety wouldn't have allowed for me to browse just beside her in awkward silence. I wasn't always like this, inside of my head and isolated. I had a pretty healthy social life and a boyfriend. He actually was the reason I moved out here. When I lost my job and couldn't bounce back, the financial strain and, more importantly, the depression that ensued weighed more than our relationship could support. Six months after I lost my job, he moved out. I was prideful and embarrassed when it came to my friends. We used to enjoy weekend getaways, expensive meals, and drinks. They had managed to either survive the massive layoffs that plagued the country, or had mommy and daddy to support them. I couldn't stand being the charity case, pretending I wasn't hungry or allowing my sympathetic chums to buy me a drink. So I stopped accepting invitations, stopped checking in with friends. I just drifted between my condo and work. I didn't want to make my tenure there feel at all permanent, so I didn't hang out with any of my coworkers when the opportunities arose. Now I see it's like a muscle. Conversation, openness, social graces. The more I retreated, the smaller my world became. The more anxious I felt around new people the less able I was to make friends or initiate contact. All I could think about when that woman approached me was how I could make her stop, how I could go back to the meditative sound of my boots clacking along the old plank floors, and how I could go back to wallowing in silence about all the things I was no longer. I had wandered about for another 20 minutes or so before deciding things had gone from relaxing to dull. My next stop would be a consignment shop down the road. Just as I was walking out the door, a man called out from behind the counter. Yes? I was surprised that he knew my name. This is yours, he said, handing me a small bag. I don't understand. I, I didn't buy anything. Someone did, so you might as well accept. I gave him a nod of acknowledgement and timidly took the bag from his grasp. I stepped outside into the damp, early November air and pulled out the dog carving. A piece of paper was folded inside the bag. Forgive me if I was presumptuous, but I sensed how dearly you loved Blanche. I couldn't let you leave without it. I've been on this earth long enough to know when someone wants something, so I hope you'll accept this gift. My heart swelled in a way it hadn't for as long as I could remember. My throat thickened and my eyes filled with moisture. I choked it all back with difficulty, as if swallowing rocks. I had felt the harsh, unforgiving reality of the adult world 
for the first time. I had been lucky, and I took it for granted. Now, I had been reduced, so this small gesture at this moment in time felt like she had given me a dog carved out of pure gold. I walked down the front steps of the warehouse entrance and was surprised to spot Judith getting into her car. I didn't want to yell, so I scurried down the steps and jogged toward her. She was beginning to pull away when I gently tapped on her window. She lowered it, a smile forming across her lips. I thanked her before she could say anything. My pleasure, sweetie. I know you said you didn't have any space, but... I felt it in my heart. I really do appreciate it. The emotions rushed up to the surface again. What's wrong with you? I thought to myself. I just had a really tough year. This was such a kind gesture. The woman smiled, this time placing her hand over mine as it rested on the driver's side door. There was a slight, consistent tremble, another hint towards her age I must have picked up on before. She squinted at me as if some new thought had sprung into her head. Can I ask you something? Of course, I said. Please feel free to say no, it's just, I'm actually in a bit of a bind. My stomach sank. Was this all an act to get something out of me? Had I just been suckered? My dog sitter, Ileana, had to move away, and I am very particular about who watches my dog. I see your tenderness towards your girl, and I feel I could trust you with my emerald, my little girl. I didn't know you had a dog, I murmured. I didn't feel it was appropriate to mention as you were mourning yours. I acknowledged her thoughtfulness with a wan smile. Here she is. Judith pulled out a photo from her visor. Emerald was not the stereotypical white fluff ball one would expect for a woman like Judith, but a huge Rottweiler. Next to the dog was a beautiful woman with espresso skin that glimmered even in an abused photo. Her hair was closely shaven to her skull, and her white smile beamed like moonlight against her dark skin tone. Her lips were enviably pillowy, and she confidently painted them with a bright coral lipstick. Is this Ileana? I asked. Judith nodded. Ileana radiated and I wondered if I could replace someone who appeared so vibrant even in a beat-up photo. I pay very well. Forty dollars an hour. I could also use some help with basic things like groceries and errands if you're interested. That was almost four times what I made per hour at the gym. If this worked out, maybe I could cut my hours there and work for Judith. We talked a little longer, and it turned out she needed someone that Sunday, which worked perfectly with my schedule. 
I shouldn't have been shocked by Judith's home, but it wasn't until I pulled up past the open gate and down the long driveway that I realized how incredibly wealthy she must be. The house was museum-like from the exterior. It probably went back to the 1800s and looked like something I could imagine in a Poe novel. It was stately and old, with moss growing up the sides of the walls. It belonged in the green lush setting as much as the surrounding mature trees did. This was a house built for gloomy gray days such as this one. Something sunny and chirpy would seem infantile next to the solemn edifice. I was so taken in by it, I almost didn't notice a car passing me in the opposite direction. Glancing over only just in time to see a woman inside. Her face bandaged in an unusual way, from the nose down. We locked eyes for a moment, and she looked away. I had arrived early and assumed she had just ended a social appointment. After I parked, I debated for a bit whether knocking on her door so early was rude, but I wanted to impress her with my promptness, so not making it known would defeat the purpose. Judith saved me from my own indecision by opening her front door. You're early? Emerald ran out as I exited the car. Don't worry, she's friendly. Her shout was brittle as Emerald jumped up and nearly knocked me over. No, Emerald, no. Judith ordered with a dearth of authority. It was an exercise in human manners more than canine. I pushed Emerald down and said, sit, in a husky voice. I conjured to gain more respect from dogs. She complied. You are a natural. That dog thinks she's the queen around here and doesn't listen to a word I say. I apologize for being so early. You'll have to help me get ready to leave then, Judith said. She invited me inside and we congregated in the kitchen. The house was colorless and serious, and it was entirely appropriate considering the Gothic architecture. I asked if I had interrupted something because I saw someone leaving. She assured me through a chuckle that it was a friend who had recently gotten a nose job and who was getting a little stir-crazy recovering at home. The house was immaculate, and everything was neatly stacked. Nothing was given to chance. That made sense. Wealth like this could afford a staff, a live-in staff at that. Yet, there was a noticeable silence that indicated we were alone. And because of this perfect orderliness, a corner of a folder haphazardly sticking out of a built-in desk drawer so that it was bent and twisted was all the more noticeable. My eyes wandered over to it and then back to her when she clutched the edge of the counter. 
Would you be a darling and grab me a water? I'm feeling a little lightheaded. She pointed me to a specific cupboard where she said she kept her thermos. I had to turn my back, and when I did, I heard her moving behind me. I wouldn't have thought anything of it except that when I had handed her her water, I noticed the drawer was now closed, and the folder was gone, and so was her sudden dizzy spell. Anemia, she claimed. I'll be back tomorrow morning. Everything you need to know about Emerald is on this sheet. I glanced over it. It was nothing out of the ordinary. The easiest $40 per hour I would ever make. I asked her about Wi-Fi, which must have been very millennial of me. I'm sorry, dear. I don't use the internet. And I should warn you, the reception out here is terrible. You'll need to use the landline in the event of emergency. She sensed my immediate angst. But there's cable. With that, she was gone. Even with Emerald, who mostly napped, the house was overbearingly hollow. For a while, I watched TV and hopelessly glanced down at the empty spot on my phone where there was typically a line of ascending bars. I had grown used to the constant contact, the feeling of never being alone. It probably facilitated my recent isolation. I could scroll through Instagram and tell myself I was still keeping up with the friends I had pretty much abandoned. But here, in this oppressively silent and shadowy home, I was alone. I was lonely, and I couldn't distract from the feeling. With a frustrated huff, I tossed the remote on the sofa and got up. Was it rude to give myself a tour? I was house-sitting, in a way. Besides, Judith hadn't shown me my room for the night. Mentioning going up and down the long staircase sometimes made her hip act up. Instead, she wrote it on the sheet like directions to some faraway destination. Go up the stairs into the far end of the hall, the last room on the right. I first explored the ground level. It wasn't surprising. The kitchen I had already seen, the den where I was watching TV, a formal dining room and a living room, a Four Seasons room. I was more curious about the second level. What could a single elderly woman like Judith do with all that space? I tiptoed up the stairs as if I was doing something wrong, despite rationalizing I wasn't, and was greeted by a long corridor at the top. Dark plum carpet lay from wall to wall, and every single door was closed. I told myself it would be less intrusive of me to walk to the end of the hallway and accidentally open the door across from mine. A simple mistake versus me purposefully nosing around. I was greeted by a room that looked like part of a museum tour. 
Emerald green florals and velvet adorned ornately carved furniture. I smirked. She must really like that color. Then I went to mine. It was ruby and lush. My inhibitions had easily waned, and I went to the next, a sapphire blue room. I was beginning to see the theme. I should have known from all the costume jewelry on her fingers that she had a taste for these things. Each door I opened displayed a room decorated in some sort of jewel tone. But when I got to the last one, I made an attempt to turn the handle, and it did not budge. It must be her personal bedroom, I thought. I turned to walk back down the hall to give my ruby room another once-over when I heard something. It was the faintest sound. In fact, I almost hadn't heard it. I stopped in my tracks, wondering if the almost imperceptible whine was an old floorboard squeaking underneath my foot. The place went silent again. The verdict? My mind was playing tricks on me. I wasn't used to being alone in a house this big. I took a few more steps and I thought I heard it again. This time I turned sharply. Emerald was at the top of the stairs now. She must have been winding downstairs. I let out a sigh of relief and chuckled to myself. Hey, Emmy girl, I said. She cozied up to me. You need to go potty, huh? I made my way back downstairs, ignoring that feeling that the answer I had come up with wasn't quite satisfying enough. When I woke up from my nap on the plush down sofa in Judith's den, it was already past midnight. A serene, dense fog had rolled in from the hills, which wasn't unusual for this time of year. Emerald was curled up at my feet. In fact, it was her snoring that woke me, so I nudged her awake and we headed upstairs together. As I walked past an old-fashioned rotary phone, just at the base of the stairs, I thought about calling someone, any of my old friends, just to say hello and tell them about this bizarre but interesting opportunity. After a few seconds of staring... I passed on the thought. I hadn't used one of these things in ages, and who called out of the blue these days anyway? I gave myself one last look, still not even a single bar, and trudged up the stairs with my charge just behind me. Emmy settled into her dog bed without being instructed, and I turned on the shower in my ensuite bathroom. I undressed as the water warmed. A thick steam began to build and roll out into the bedroom, much like the night fog outside. I stepped into the cloud, so dense I could hardly see anything in the bathroom, when I heard a loud pounding. I gasped as my heart rocketed in my throat. What the fuck was that? I was only in my underwear at that point and scrambled into the suffocating hot, wet air for something to cover my exposed body. I found a robe and threw it on, tiptoeing out into the bedroom to find that Emmy was gone and the bedroom door was wide open. I couldn't remember if 
I had closed it securely or not. Each heavy breath in my chest shuddered as I searched my thoughts for what to do. Instinctively, I thought about grabbing my cell phone, but remembered only the landline worked. It hadn't seemed so important before, but now that I needed it, I remembered in all my wandering, I had only seen the one, and it was at the base of the stairs. I'd have to walk down the long, dark hallway, past a dozen closed doors just to get to it. The pounding started again, this time without the white noise of the shower crowding my hearing. It was louder, and it erased any notion that I was alone in the house. I searched the room for anything I could use as a weapon, but even the lamps were sconces. Everything was bolted down or built in. To shut myself in the room, I'd have to walk to the door closer to whatever was out there. I was a sitting duck and had to act somehow. I tiptoed to the doorway. Every muscle in my body tense in an attempt to weigh me down and fix me to my place. But I trudged forward. As I walked closer to it, I heard the low grumblings of a growl. Emmy was my responsibility, and though I might leave her out there if it was life or death, I would first do whatever I could to bring her back to me. If anything, Emerald by my side would be the ultimate protection. Another succession of loud poundings. I stifled a scream. My entire body trembled as I shuffled to the threshold with my back against the wall. Emmy's growls increased in volume as I neared the opening to the corridor. Finally, I held my breath, as if jumping into a pool, unable to swim, with no idea of its depth, and peeked down the hallway. The light from my room barely reached down where she was, but it was enough to make out the shadowy scene. Emmy sat in front of the locked room at attention. Her ears sprung erect on her broad skull, and even in this darkness, I could see the whites of her bared teeth and the glimmering drool trailing down her jowls. I was breathless with adrenaline that caused my entire body to quake. I opened my mouth and barely a raspy whisper emerged. Emmy. Emmy. She couldn't hear me, and I knew a dog locked in like that would require more than a shaky, breathy, tear-choked beckoning. This time, I saw the door jolt with each thud, and I felt like I had jumped into the ceiling, though my feet hadn't left the ground. I pressed against the wall harder, like that would protect me, shield me from the source of the thuds. I extended a shivering arm from the doorway and gestured for Emerald. 
Her name escaped in a weak, throaty cry again. Emmy, please. But she suddenly rose on all fours, and her growling intensified. I couldn't see what had changed, but I had decided at that point I needed to get to the phone. If whatever was trying to break in or out was in that room, she had already proven that she would stand guard. I crept along the wall opposite the door in question. At first, so slowly, it seemed as though it would take me all night to get to the staircase. But as I gained a moat of composure, I picked up my pace, realizing lingering in this hallway was keeping me exposed. I hastily scurried toward the stairs, and as I neared the door, I saw what Emerald was staring at. What caused her to go from cautiously protective to ready to defend? The handle of the door was twisting and turning. The clanking sounds of the old brass doorknob, a terrifying reminder of what little stood between me and whatever was trying to come through. I hurried my pace, now just a few steps from the door when I heard it. This time I knew it wasn't Emmy. I couldn't convince myself it was an old house settling. A moan. It was masked by the solid wood door but also muffled, like someone whose mouth was bound. Then another, fainter, but also more distinct sound. A female voice. Help us. I froze, unable to will myself to move. It was as if my body or brain was insisting I listen. I wish I could say I bravely called out to those voices. But I just stood there, quivering like a plucked, taut string. Another weak moan. The handle continued to twist back and forth. Emmy growled and spit. The flesh on her throat vibrated with a restrained growl. This time it was clear. So clear that it unlocked my days like a splash of frigid water. I bolted down the stairs, my wobbly legs hardly able to sustain my weight. I picked up the phone receiver and stuck my finger in the rotary holes and tugged the way I could barely remember from my childhood. Nothing happened. There wasn't even a signal. I banged the receiver against the table and listened for a dial tone. Of course, that hadn't fixed anything. I ran to the kitchen in search of my keys. I felt around the massive island in the dark and saw nothing. I found a light switch and the island was bare. I was certain I had left them there. Maybe I had forgotten them in my purse, which I had rested on a dining room chair. 
I pulled the chairs and stools from their respective places. It was gone. Should I run out of the house? What if people were waiting for me out there? What if the people upstairs really needed me? I searched the kitchen for a weapon. I couldn't find a single knife. I had eaten dinner before I fell asleep, and I know I had seen some. Hell, I had used one. Now they were gone. My thoughts were too frenzied to make any sense of this other than something was terribly wrong in this house. Had someone broken in as I slept? Had they put their prisoners in that room? None of this made any sense. In a last-ditch effort, I opened up the doors under the sink and found an old screwdriver. Something the help must have forgotten while fixing a leak long ago. I gave one last look outside the front window. My car was gone. I didn't even know where the closest house was, but maybe I could get out to the road. I tried for the front door handle. It was much. Come on, I cried, pushing and pulling with all my might, not losing sight of the fact that this wasn't unlike what the person or people upstairs were doing. I ran to another door, locked as well. Shut up, I screamed, just as much to the thudding upstairs as to the deafening pulse in my head. I tried it all, but the windows wouldn't shatter. No door would budge. I was trapped. My fear of what was behind that door began to shape into empathy. Whoever was in that room was a victim. Like me, they were trapped. Maybe we could help each other. With that, I understood the only place to go was up. My unsteady hands could barely support the screwdriver as I crept back up the stairwell. As I neared the top, the frenzy upstairs became more apparent. Emmy was scratching at the doors. The handle was being pulled and pushed in a steady rhythm. The primal moans had become frantic. Emmy, down! I commanded, with a force in my voice that I hadn't summoned since this whole ordeal started. I felt confident she wouldn't turn on me, and I was right as I clipped on her leash and hooked it to another door, just far enough for her to be out of reach, but close enough for me to run and unleash her in a hurry. Hello? I asked. There was an enthusiastic grunt of sorts, something like the squeal of a hog. It was feral, helpless distraught. Then there was a week. Hello? Who are you? I asked. There's no time to explain. You... There was a pause, as though every phrase exhausted her. You have to get help, or let us out. Please, hurry. She'll come for you, too. She? What are you talking about? A panicked series of thuds and groans came through from their side. 
they had run out of patience. I still couldn't choose. Once that door was opened, I couldn't take it back. Please, I need to know more. How do I know you won't hurt me? Who are you? What are you doing here? There was a silence on the other side. It lasted for seconds and created a cavern of emptiness where relentless chaos had been just seconds earlier. The voice that eventually emerged had gone so weak. I finally understood that at least one person on that side barely had the strength to speak, let alone attack me. Morgan and Ileana. picture of that vibrant coral lipstick against that effervescent dark skin popped into my thoughts. She'll come for you too. Those words echoed in my head. I didn't quite understand what was happening, but like when you begin to cluster the first few fragments of a puzzle, I could form a vague idea of the picture unfolding. Ileana never moved. She was here all along. And if I was the next Ileana, a fiery urgency took over me when I realized the implications. I grabbed the screwdriver firmly and began to unscrew the knob from the door. After a few minutes, the knob loosened. I reached in with a long end and jammed it into the locking mechanism. I cried a battle cry as I jimmied and shook and twisted the screwdriver. Finally, with some assistance on their side, the door was pushed open. One of them fell on top of me and I panicked, dragging myself out from underneath her. I could feel her velvety skin and see the outline of her close-shaven head, though it had grown out a bit. It was Ileana. Still, I broke free, untrusting of her intentions. Emerald barked in the background and strained the leash. No, I shouted, and she sat, still at attention, retreating back to a low grumble. Finally, I came to my feet. Ileana was still on all fours, and when she looked up at me, I gasped in disbelief and bone-splitting terror. Where there had once been a kissable, thick set of coral lips, one that framed a moonbeam smile, there was a thin trail of stitches, sealing what was left of her mouth shut. She tried to say something through her closed mouth, I think it was help. It was then I realized that faint, indistinct sound I had heard 
the one that grew with urgency, was her. Oh my God, I whimpered sympathetically, pulling her to her feet. I looked behind her and saw another young woman collapsed on the floor. She had a large swath of bandages around her entire hip region. And where the buttocks would be was a huge red blood stain. I ran over to her and shook her, but she wouldn't stir. I waited too long. I was too late to save her. She used her last bit of strength to help us open the door. Ileana moaned a guttural cry through her sealed mouth and knelt at her side. It sounded animal-like, as if she had been stripped of her humanity. We have to go, I whispered. She held on to her friend as long as she could before I pulled her out of her grasp. I placed her arm around my shoulder and guided her down the stairs. We were trapped as far as I knew, but I hoped Ileana knew more than I did about the house and could use what strength she had to guide us out. Memories of my interactions with Judith raced through my thoughts. How she sought me out, lured me with flattery and a gift, despite the subtle warning signs that made me uncomfortable. How she touched me without asking, asked me questions as if my origins were otherworldly, inspected me with her eyes like I was one of the antiques for sale. I had forgiven them, as I was trained to do my entire life. As we finally reached the bottom of the winding staircase, panting and exhausted, I said to Ileana, I know you're tired, but they... she took my car keys. We're going to have to run. Do you know a way out? Everything is locked. She made a gesture with her hands, asking for a pen and paper and pointed towards the kitchen where there might be some writing utensils. We rounded a corner and stopped like a brick wall had instantaneously erected in front of us. Though it was too dark to make out every fine detail, the shape of the person blocking our path about 20 feet away from us was undoubtedly that of Judith. What do you want? I screamed. I saw something in her hand. A gun, maybe? I reached into my robe pocket, but it was empty. I must have dropped the screwdriver upstairs. She started walking towards us, and we ran towards the Four Seasons room which was on the other end of the ground level. Emerald! Get her, Judith shouted. The old woman quiver still evident in her voice, but this time she spoke authoritatively and at a volume I didn't think she was capable of. Like some canine Manchurian candidate, I heard her bound down the stairs. It devastated me to know Emmy was in on it all. Her growling at the door wasn't to protect me. 
It was to keep them in. Judith was her master, and all it took was one command for Emerald to realize she had permission to rip herself off that leash, which was merely a suggestion. I wouldn't let Ileana go, and her muted whimpers echoed against my ears as we hobbled toward uncertainty. We were close. I could see the glass walls and the fog outside. Maybe I could close the door behind me and secure us in there. We were just feet away when Emerald slammed into our backs, like one giant clenched fist. We fell forward and she stood on my back, blobs of saliva raining down on me. The bony clap of Emmy's jaw snapped shut repeatedly just inches from my ear. But she never actually bit me. Somehow in the chaos, Ileana got loose. Sick, Judith ordered. Emerald bounded off me and tackled poor Ileana again, holding her down as the shadow of that old bitch cast over me. I turned on my back to face her. She raised the gun at me and pulled the trigger. I didn't expect death to be so painless. It was more like a pinch than a bang. I looked over at my arm where I thought the bullet had landed and instead saw a dart. I reached for it, but my hand grew heavy. Then I drifted away. It was the sound of metal clinking that stirred me from my tranquilizer-induced haze. Through blurry eyes I saw a figure clad in scrubs, assembling instruments on a tray. The room was a pale, sickly green that singed my pupils under harsh lighting. It reminded me of an old infirmary and was nothing like all the other deeply rich and ornately decorated bedrooms. I was careful not to move noticeably as I feared I would be sedated again. The room smelled overwhelmingly of bleach, but it couldn't entirely hide the sharp metallic odor of blood. After a couple of minutes, the man stepped out of the room. Faint chatter echoed down the hall. It was casual, if not subdued, and it came closer. I heard an easy chuckle from one of the voices. Oh. My. Goodness. A voice that was not Judith's exclaimed. She clasped her hands over her mouth. Their footsteps moved toward me, and I closed my eyes. Isn't it beautiful? Judith asked. I felt fingers in my hair, kneading and tugging on the tight coils. Based on what I had seen of Morgan and Ileana, I finally understood why I was there. It was absurd, I thought, that either of these women would want my hair. Judging from the way they handled it, neither of them would even know what to do with it. It enraged me that 
they thought they could just steal from us. Our bodies, our most personal possession, was to be used for what was useful to them. And what was not discarded. She had a bit of a rough go tonight, so you can only imagine how gorgeous it will look, freshly styled. So do you want it? Judith asked. Do I? Of course. I want it all. Will I get her lips too? She asked. I think I have a better candidate, but we would need to move quickly. I don't know how much longer she'll last. Their footsteps paced away, and I crept my eyes open. They were walking toward Morgan's limp body on a gurney. One of her arms hung off the side, as there was no care for her comfort. They hadn't even bothered to tie her down like they had me. She was a slaughtered cow that had been whittled down to its last useful bit and would be in the trash soon enough. Even nearly dead, the blood drained from her face. I could see she was stunning. Her toffee-colored skin was prickled with freckles, her hair a tangle of box braids. Oh, those are nice, the woman said of Morgan's lips. I like her hair too, but I think the braids wouldn't work in my profession. You know, she thought for a moment to herself, my daughter is an Instagram influencer, and if I'm being honest, She's an obnoxious little bitch who just siphons our money to post inspirational quotes and travel the world. But you know, you have to support them in their endeavors. Her cackle was artificially cheerful, as though her vocal cords were constructed of hard plastic. Anyway, I bet she would love these braids. Judith had three folders in her arms. Two looked brand new, but one had a bent edge. I would assume from hastily trying to slam it into a desk drawer in preparation for an early guest. I thought back to my early arrival. The woman with the bandaged face. Judith pretending to act faint so she could hide the rogue folder. Judith opened one of them. I'm sorry. Anything off of this young lady would have to be done tonight, so your daughter would not be a candidate. Besides, I'm afraid these are extensions and would defeat the purpose of why you're here, as you want the most organic, authentic experience. You want the hair to take host on your scalp and grow. You don't want regular trips to the clinic for lip and glute injections. You want to own these parts. You want them to be yours as if you were born with them. Judith's tone was inspired. A saleswoman through and through. Well, if you get another head of hair like that that can be implanted, I'll pay double. So, 
McCarley can have it if she wants. You'll be the first person I call, Judith said with a smile. She glanced up at the clock. We have to hurry. This one is looking exceptionally pallid. Let's look at your glutes quickly. They went over to the final table, where Ileana was on her stomach. Wow, the woman giddily exclaimed. Now that is an ass. She poked it and let out an excited squeal. So firm and muscular. I could do squats for years and my ass would never do that. This is so exciting. She paused and bit her lip. I only have one concern. She is so much darker than me. We couldn't be further apart in skin tone. Judith nodded assuringly. Rest assured, once your transplant has taken and healed, you will have the option to tattoo it to match your skin, just like we did your breasts. And though the breasts were somewhat lighter than this highly melanated specimen, I can assure you we can still get a match. The woman clasped her hands in excitement and giggled. That is great news, because I want that ass. Well, let's get you prepped. Judith called the surgeon in, and within a few minutes, the future recipient of our hair, lips, and ass was unconscious. The number of stateside clients has increased significantly, the doctor noted, as a surgical glove snapped against his hand. Mm-hmm, Judith replied, pleased with herself. They are a little more cautious here, as am I, but once they're sold, they practically beg you to take their money. After all, where else are they going to go for this? She paced along the room, admiring her operation. Then their friends all get terribly jealous. Once one friend has bigger lips, more curves, exotic hair, they all start flooding in. At that point, it sells itself. She took a few steps toward Morgan. How's lips doing? The doctor sighed. Pulse is weak, but she's still breathing. Her blood is flowing, which is all I care about right now. We just need to get started. Judith turned towards me and I closed my eyes. I felt her lift a few locks of hair. Let's get started with this one. You already know this is the highest ticket item today. The bidding was so fierce, I thought the women would pull each other's hair out. <sighs> More money for us, then, the doctor quipped, and they had a chuckle. Judith added, I want to ensure that this is our primary focus, then lips, then buttocks. Does that work in your professional opinion? The donor scalping and suturing to the recipient's skull takes a while, so I'd prefer to do the lips first, but I'm sure it'll be fine. 
His footsteps moved towards Morgan. I need to hurry, though. We can always put her on ice, but you know the success rate is much higher with live donors. You need to stop selling asses first. They barely last long enough after that for me to harvest the rest of the parts. Asses are in high demand, Judith argued. The doctor sucked his teeth. I'm going to use a local on the women today. I don't want any complications with the tranquilizer in their systems. Whatever works and keeps them down, she replied flippantly. Unlike earlier today when you failed to keep them sedated. The doctor huffed. (sighs) I had to take Flora to equestrian. Susan fucking dropped the ball. Can't you afford a nanny with all that money I pay you? Judith scoffed. The doctor didn't reply, but his instruments clinked along the tray, signaling he was done with the workplace bickering. I'll be back to check in in an hour or so. I peeked just enough to watch as Judith left the room, closing the door behind her. There was now a hole where the knob used to be, so it remained unlocked. My body was overwhelmed with a flight response and yet hopelessly resigned to my fate as I lay bound to the surgical table with thick leather straps. A tear fell down my cheek. Doctor, please. I eked. He spun on his heels, holding a loaded syringe. He frowned and tisked at me. Now, don't scream, or I will put you under and you may never wake up. Please, don't, I begged. He was a surgeon. It sounded like he had a daughter. He had to have cared about people once. He had to have taken the Hippocratic Oath. We're good people. We have families. You don't have to do this. You're not pass up 500 grand per procedure good, I'm afraid. He stepped towards me. If it makes you feel better, your hair is going to make someone very happy. I thought of all the time I fretted over it in the mirror. How I wished I had silky, effortless hair like in all the commercials I watched as a child. I felt invisible. And suddenly this burden of mine had grown into something desirable, acceptable. As soon as it did, someone wanted to steal it right off my skull. I wondered if Ileana ever stormed out of a dressing room in a rage over why nothing fit her thick butt and small waist. I know I did. These things that we lived with, we toiled over, we were made to feel insecure about. We were now novelties for someone else. Exotic rarities that earned top dollar. Would they tire of my hair? 
and Ileana's butt and Morgan's lips and swapped them out like Mr. Potato Head pieces long after we had given the greatest sacrifice for their vanity. Ileana, Ileana, are you awake? I called out. She opened her eyes, but I saw the resignation, the finality. She wasn't going to make a sound. Now, if you say one more word, I will put you under. The doctor pressed through gritted teeth. This won't hurt. I promise. He slogged over to me with a large syringe. I tried to sink my body into the table. As if that millionth of a second delay before the needle touched my skin would change anything. I would be stripped of parts like a stolen car and then die an agonizing death. And no one would probably even know because I had purposely isolated myself. I had friends who cared and instead of leaning on them, I pulled away. No one knew I was here. No one would know how I died. No one would know that there are people walking amongst them with parts stolen from me. I decided then, I would scream. I would make it hard for him and Judith. I would make them understand my wrath. All I had left was my voice. The moment I declared that verdict, I saw a sight almost more horrifying than anything else I had seen that night. The dead rose. Morgan, unrestrained and thought of as too weak to move, sat up. It was slow and quiet like a vampire from a coffin. When she saw my eyes, the confusion, the terror, the hope, she raised one lackadaisical finger to her lips. I knew I had to do the opposite. I had to keep his eyes and ears on me by talking. Okay, I, I'll be good, I promise. I won't scream, okay? Just please don't put me to sleep. He seemed pleased. Good. I want you to relax. That'll make it easier for the both of us. I do sympathize what you're going through, believe it or not. Fighting will only make it worse. If it helps, we can talk during the procedure. He stuck the needle in my scalp. It felt cold at first. Then seconds later, numbness spread. Morgan reached in the bandages wrapped around her hips, where her glutes once were, and carefully slipped out the screwdriver I had dropped earlier. Yeah, yeah, we can talk. How'd you get into this business? I asked. Morgan put one bare foot on the floor 
Her stability was tenuous. I was certain she would collapse. He chuckled to himself, almost wistfully, as he grabbed the scalpel. I was Judith's plastic surgeon. She was my top patient, not only in getting herself surgeries, but she was great with referrals. We used to do the conventional stuff, but she always wanted more. She was never satisfied. Nothing ever looked real enough. I could tell the critique stung. She would bring in pictures. I want this or that. Truth is, I thought she looked great, but she wanted what she called the real thing. And, well, the only way to get that, we had discussed, was to be blessed from the good Lord himself. Then I had an idea. He raised the scalpel up to punctuate the moment. Conventional medical ethics wouldn't allow for it, but I had theories about how we could make it work. He stopped himself. (laughs) Wow, I'm just prattling on. I can't talk to anyone about this, as you can imagine. Even my wife, ex-wife, doesn't know. I'm sure, I said, anxiously averting my eyes from the corpse-like woman closing in on him. Well, your secret's safe with me. I laughed nervously. He raised the scalpel towards my head. I didn't feel him cutting the line across my hairline. But I did hear the blade scraping against my skull. I heard squelching sounds as he did things I couldn't see. I was grateful for the numbness. It kept me from completely losing my shit. I was glad for the conversation. It kept me patient as I waited for Morgan. We've been doing it for years now. First, we went overseas to small, lightly regulated countries where law enforcement could be paid off or were altogether indifferent. Hell, we could even outright buy girls there, imported from countries where there was a lot of violence, so no one would really notice. Congo, Syria, places like that. He recited it all so matter-of-factly. Wealthy clients would fly in, get their procedures done, and fly home. Judith was sick of all the travel. She looks great, but my work can't keep her insides young. So we brought the operation here. I'm frankly astonished at how quickly it's caught on. Morgan took another shaky step. I wanted to scream at her like a football coach. Come on, Morgan, push. But I couldn't even encourage her with my eyes and risk bringing attention her way. Uh, I'm going to have to turn you on your side to get the back. He unbuckled one of the restraints but held on to my wrist. You're going to need to roll on your side and then I'm going to tie this hand next to your other hand. I have a tranquilizer gun right here and plenty of anesthesia to use on top of that. You might not ever wake up from that much sedation, so don't test me. You don't need to do that. I know I'm not getting out of here. He looked at me skeptically. Morgan was just a couple of feet away. 
Can I ask you a question? I asked. Yes, but quickly. That girl with the lips won't last all night. We need the flesh as fresh as possible. How did she find me? I had assumed I was chosen the moment she spotted me at the antique store. But her comments about a bidding war had made me realize her plans for me may have extended further back. He pursed his lips and lightly nodded his head as if to say it was a good question. It's funny, I usually don't know these things, but she has had her eyes on you for a while and has mentioned you many times. She saw you getting lunch around where you used to work and knew someone would pay big for you. He patted some white gauze against my head, and when he pulled it away, there was a bright red stain in its center. Judith is patient, though. She noticed you had a boyfriend and you were always with friends. That means you would be missed. Usually she went for girls who wouldn't be those from bad neighborhoods or foster homes, prostitutes, and the like. He paused for a moment and I heard him returning to work on my head. You were like her white whale. Then she saw you weren't going to lunch anymore. And she had someone looking on you. Hoping she could find a way in. You'd lost your job, the boyfriend moved out, then you stopped walking your dog, so... She figured it was out of the picture, and she decided that would be the perfect time to get you. There'd be no trace of you left behind. People would assume you left or committed suicide, and there wouldn't be an abandoned dog to cause suspicion. He snickered to himself. <laughs> she actually told me she almost ruined it after all that work. She was so excited to finally meet you that... She wrote your dog's name on a card she gave you, but later she realized you hadn't actually told her the name. He laughed, as if reciting a serendipitous story to a friend. The one restraint still bound to my wrist rattled against the metal bar with a scorn so deep my bones quaked. She watched my life fall apart. And then, when I was at my absolute lowest, she gave me a little kindness, like a scared, abandoned dog. I ran to her. You're all fucking savages. All of you, I sneered. His relaxed face contorted with anger. He slammed down his scalpel. That's it, he said. You're wasting my time. Morgan shoved the screwdriver into the side of his neck. His eyes widened so much that I thought they would plunge from their sockets. In shock, he stumbled a few steps back and reached one hand onto the screwdriver handle before yanking it out. Blood shot out of the small hole in his neck but he still raised the tool towards me. Without conscious deliberation, I used my free hand to grab his scalpel off the tray and in one quick motion, slid it across his neck, just like he had mercilessly done across my scalp. 
though I felt the slight resistance of his tissue against the blade. For a second, I thought I had missed when he stared back at me with an uncut throat. Then a thin line of red suddenly appeared right before my eyes, and it thickened as a waterfall of crimson, viscous liquid poured out. He dropped the screwdriver and collapsed. Morgan tumbled on top of him. I pulled off my other restraint and ran over to Ileana to do the same for her. Her eyes welled. Are we really getting out of here? They asked. We turned Morgan over and pleaded for her to wake, but she didn't. Her lips were gray, and I knew this time there would be no chance for her. I'm sorry, but we have to go. She's gone, I said with as much sensitivity as the situation could allow. I yanked Ileana away from Morgan's body, but she escaped my grasp. And with the screwdriver in hand, she ran towards the sedated woman who had been awaiting our parts. Ileana, no! I hissed. It was too late. She plunged the screwdriver into the woman's chest and it let out a sickening, dull thud. She jimmied it out of the thick chest wall with a grunt and this time sank the screwdriver into one of her breasts. Ileana, stop! I ran towards them. But I knew it was too late as the heart monitor began to beat erratically. I let her savage the body as she grabbed a scalpel from the table and slashed the woman's face and legs and stomach. Tears streamed down her eyes and staccato cries emanated from her chest, trapped inside of her stitched mouth. It was all so fast and frenzied, like a ravenous animal desecrating a carcass, tearing her apart the way they had done so many girls who had been forgotten. In one final symbolic coup over the woman's body, she pulled her pale upper lip and carved it off of her face. I gagged as I reached for Ileana's arm, but she shrugged me away. I had done my part. I had gone through the pantomime of mercy, but I understood and I knew in the most basic sense of justice, an eye for an eye. A breast for a breast, a lip for a lip. That this woman deserved it. Yet, no matter what Ileana did to this woman, she was asleep. She was at peace. She would never experience the pain and horror that we did as we felt an unforgivable betrayal from our fellow woman. We were all disposable so long as her wants were met. A loud gasp came from behind us. I swung my head to face it, and there was Judith, 
standing at the doorway, hand over her mouth. A metallic clinking sound behind me rattled along the floor, and I turned to see that Ileana had dropped the scalpel, her wrath making way for fear. Her decisive, firm grip had dissolved into an impotent, shaky hand. This time when I looked at Judith, I saw all the dead women fused to her body. Those creaseless, plump lips, her dark, thick hair, her robust curves, the things she had stolen to cover up the rotted soul inside of her. Each part represented dead, forgotten girls. Women no one cared about enough to notice when they had gone missing. Women who the police would assume had run away or had it coming because of where they were from or how they made a living. Women desperate for money, affection, family. Women whose most valued assets were their body parts and what pleasure they could bring to some other person who had a greater perceived value. It was my turn to be the one filled with rage. You disgusting old bitch, I growled, lunging forward. She ran like a coward and screamed a new command at Emerald. Kill. After a few loud footfalls, Emerald burst into the room just as her owner scurried down the stairs. Ileana screamed through her clenched mouth as the bitch barreled towards us. And acting on pure instinct, I grabbed the tranquilizer gun lying on the table beside me and fired. Emerald pounced on me and chomped on my forearm when I raised it to protect my face. Ileana kicked Emmy, who was too deep in the red to feel her. But within seconds, her feral attack went limp. If it wasn't for the blood dripping from her mouth, she'd have looked like a sleeping angel. Together, we pushed the heavy dog off of me. Ileana haphazardly wrapped my chewed-up arm and we made a run for it. The front door was wide open, and as we ran towards it, we saw the taillights of a car speeding down the driveway. That thieving psycho had gotten away. I looked at Ileana, not sure what to do next, and she dangled a pair of Mercedes keys in front of my face. The doctor's car. I grabbed them, though I wasn't in great shape myself. Ileana could hardly walk without assistance and we hopped into the silver car. I sped away, feeling outside of myself, barely able to focus on the dark road ahead. My injured arm rested on the center console as I white-knuckled the steering wheel with the opposite hand. When we screeched past the gate and onto the main road, I adjusted the rearview mirror and unveiled a startling reflection. My scalp was peeled back a quarter of the way, exposing my skull. I wish I could explain what it feels like to look in the mirror 
and feel as though you are disconnected from your own body. I still couldn't feel a thing on my skull, and so my mind simply could not accept the fact that that was me in the mirror. That I had been scalped. I slowly raised my injured hand to the exposed, wet bone. And when I felt it under my fingertips, I released a hollow breath. A silent scream. Ileana grunted loudly and pulled the steering wheel. I looked up and saw we were swerving off the road, but she had overcorrected and we tumbled <laughs> down the road. You may think that fear is finite. That you can only get so frightened before it's all the same dreadful rush. But no. There are levels and shades and the combinations are endless. As we toppled down, our bodies rattled like pinballs. I felt a new cocktail. By the time I had been stable enough to talk to the police, days had passed. Believe me, I tried through drug-induced hazes to plead for the police. At least that's what a nurse told me. I remembered nothing. The police visited my room when the hospital felt I was stable. They sat patiently as I told them every last detail. I explained the urgency of the matter, how she could be anywhere in the world. She was evil and needed to stop before she could find another doctor to corrupt. Ileana could confirm it all, I told them. The detectives both looked at each other uncomfortably. We're sorry, but she didn't make it. It was hours before someone had even spotted the accident. She passed away at the scene. The bed rattled as my body shook. She couldn't be dead. That's not how this story ends. She couldn't have survived all that to die alone on the side of the road like roadkill. Listen, Sarai, I want you to know that we are taking this investigation very seriously. In fact, while you were recovering, we learned of the doctor because the car you crashed was registered to him. We found the house you were held in. Relief came over me as I realized that perhaps they were going to tell me they found Judith. And we did find some of what you spoke of. He hesitated and I wasn't sure if he wanted me to say something. Some? I asked. We found the doctor and he was dead just as you described. We found the instruments he used on you. We found the other girl. Her autopsy lines up with what you just told us. Even the dog was there, still unconscious when we arrived. But there was no trace of this woman, Judith. The house was owned by the doctor. That dog was also his, a companion he got for himself after his wife divorced him. 
And as we speak, we have a team digging up the property. We have already found bodies. You were right about there being other victims, but up until now, there's no evidence he had any help. The middle-aged blonde woman that you said Ileana attacked? There was no such person at the scene. There's no evidence anyone other than the doctor and his dog was with you and the two other women. You have to check his old patient records. Judith, uh, I realized I did not know her last name. Are you saying I'm lying? His eyes were sympathetic, and I felt his pity. No, absolutely not. I'm just hoping that maybe by presenting these facts to you, I can provide some clarity. You went through a lot that night. You hit your head severely. I'm only saying that I'm going to have to look all this over again. He took a long breath and softened his posture. The doctor had quit his practice years ago. Had just gone through a long, drawn-out divorce in a custody battle and became pretty isolated. He also had a rough divorce in a previous marriage. It's possible he was taking out his anger on women. No, this was a business. (laughs) We were being stripped for parts. I almost cringed at myself when I said it. I knew I sounded crazy. I knew it sounded medically impossible. I knew he didn't believe me. And I realized Judith had done to the doctor what she had done to me. She made him think they were a team, but she monopolized on his isolation. Not only was he her surgeon, but he would be her scapegoat if need arose. I realized that she probably wouldn't be in his old records because, of course, her real name wasn't Judith. That would be incredibly reckless for someone who was such a meticulous planner. I insisted he go to the antique store, ask the person who worked there about the gift she had gotten me. He said he would, but when he left, I realized he could explain it all away. The woman's image had somehow imprinted, and when I was kidnapped by this crazed serial killer doctor who mutilated women of color for fun, I had snapped. My brain couldn't accept that this man wanted to torture me just for the thrill, so it brewed this half-cocked story, a reason behind all of the madness. What about the woman who Ileana killed? Maybe her family would report her missing. But she could have come from anywhere in the country. Would the dots ever be connected? Would her family fight for answers, or would her globe-trotting daughter just be grateful she was gone so she could inherit everything? When the bodies were all found... Dr. Ziegler was labeled the parts collector. The lore took on its own life, especially because there were so many unanswered questions. No one could figure out how he got the girls. 
They presumed he either snatched them or lured them with the promise of cheap plastic surgery. Can you believe that? The media had spun it to make these poor, innocent girls look like they were willing to follow the shady doctor to their deaths. The victims had slowly been spun to look like they were the architects of their own demise. But it was their vanity that had led them to him. Many of the victims were sex workers, so it was easy to believe that they would be suckers for cheap cosmetic surgery. The detective insists he believes me, but can't prove the woman exists. She may as well be a ghost. I had been offered money to tell my story as his only survivor, but I'm not ready to be a spectacle. Someone tried to consume my body, and I won't let curious onlookers consume my trauma for their entertainment. They will all pity me and insist I have lost my mind when I know she was real. I still see that picture of Ileana in my head. It helps me imagine who she was before this horrible fate fell upon her. It also reminds me that I failed her. Maybe someday I will be able to tell the story when I'm strong enough. I can tell people how hard Ileana and Morgan fought to survive. Maybe it will help me forgive myself. No matter how much therapy I do, no matter how many times I revisit that day, no one will convince me that Judith didn't exist. I still keep the little dog carving she bought me. The only physical evidence I have that she and I crossed paths I hate that it looks so much like Blanche. That woman stained the purest love I have ever had. Now, whenever I see a woman on TV or in person who looks like the hand of a doctor had something to do with her impossibly full lips or pert breasts, I wonder if they are wearing those girls. I wonder if she's still out there, befriending the lonely, the poor, the forgotten, and whittling them down, part by part, before discarding the waste. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. Remember to check out our sponsors and use my offer code so I can afford to keep creating special and extra long episodes. And thank you so much to my Patreon donors, 
If you'd like to become a donor, visit patreon.com slash scary to sleep to see my different tiers. If you donate $5 or more, I'll even send you your very own scary to sleep sticker. Special thanks this week to my newest donors, Michael Brown, Matt Bertuzzi, Stephen Long, and Emily Yell. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Remember to rate and review on iTunes. I saw that some people were definitely not fans of my Guided Nightmare episode, but that's okay. To those who did enjoy it, I'm glad I could share this little project of mine with you. Thank you so much in believing in my weird little experiment. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Scary to Sleep. Join the Facebook group. We've had a lot of fun there lately talking about episodes and sharing pictures of your pets. Come join so you can point me in the direction of the latest creepy YouTube videos. Please answer the questions. It just makes it easier for us to figure out who is and isn't trying to teach us to mine bitcoins or selling us on Herbalife. Also, if you aren't being asked questions, that means you found the page, so look for the link to the group on the page. I also just started a Tumblr. I don't know how it works or how to use it, but I'm under a scare you to sleep. I think that's all for now. You can find a link to Nina's Amazon author page in the show notes, as well as a link to Helix. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>